Build Radio, Episode 3. Okay, so we know that Build is definitely in the building. Make some noise, Build! Build hope. Build life. Build solve real problems. Build future. Build solve real problems. There's a lot of gun violence in my community. I always have to be careful when I go out to the streets because, like, I never know when they're going to start shooting. Carlos was uh, 18 years old. He was gunned down when she was only 15 years old. You're not going to do this to my city. You're not going to do this to our children. We need help. We need help now. We need to stop it now. You are listening to B.O. Radio. How B.O. made me feel, made me feel like I'm in a safe haven. Like, I'm protected, I'm guarded. How do I feel about Bill? I feel like they gonna help me make it in life. It just makes me feel at home, like I have people that care about me here. I look at Bill like family, so they mean a lot to me. They make me feel like I'm smart, like I'm a part of something good instead of being a part of some violence or something bad. I feel loved when I come to Bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Build Radio, a.k.a. the Build Radio Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us from where and whenever you are for our third episode. My name is Benji Wax, and I'm very stoked to be joined today by my many co-hosts. We got TJ, Stewan, Jaquan, Davion. They're all youth participants in Build's summer music and media program. You guys want to go around and introduce yourselves for the people? My name is Jaquan. Um, I'm 16. I still go to oil. I'm still in high school. Uh, I'm in the West Garfield community. And I plan on going to do college and major in um, computer engineering. My name is Davion Clark, age 19. I just graduated Westtown Academy High School. My community is Washington Park slash Inglewood. I will be attending Trident College under criminal justice. My name is Stewart Rogers. Uh, I'm 16. I go to OA. My community is Humble Park. My name is Antonio Dill. I currently be 18, August 1st. I just graduated West Town Academy, attending China under engineering. My community is West Garfield. Alrighty, cool. Thank you guys so much for being here. You're here for quite a special episode. Uh, in it, we've got interviews with Illinois U.S. Senator Dick Durbin, the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate, as well as Dr. Eve Ewing, who's a nationally published writer, poet, scholar, artist, and Chicago Twitter heavyweight. Um, and it will also feature some spoken word pieces from Build Youth, as well as a powerful commercial sneak preview of our next episode's feature guest. So, guys, like a couple days ago, we were talking about, you know, how we could utilize the podcast as a way to shine some light on, you know, the ongoings of some of the communities that Build works with, some of the places that you guys live in. Shavante was like, let's tell the people the good, let's tell the people some of the bad, too. So give us a little bit of light on what you guys see in your day-to-day life, the good and the bad. Uh, good is... You seeing a lot of more programs to keep boys and girls off the streets. Get more mm-hmm. money. But the bad mm-hmm. is, is it's still shooting. It's still violence. Mm-hmm. Not just violence with us as the kids. It's still us as the adults. Or you do see a lot of bad stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see good things too, too like no, uh, it's, it's okay. You will see people picking mm-hmm. up trash around the community and stuff, yeah. and yeah. stuff like that. Sometimes yeah. it's drug dealers, mm-hmm. crackheads, yeah, right, dolphins, yeah, not and off. All that man, that's shooting. Like, yeah, people getting killed every day. Yeah. So like, are you guys scared when you go out and about? Sometimes. I'm Sometimes. used to it. Right. Yeah. You used to it, but. And so you just kind of become like, I don't know, not not adapt like blind. To yeah, but you to me though, to it. my my favorite thing, what I do before I go outside, I probably pray. You know, that helped me out during the day. Yeah, every yeah. time? Every time. Yeah. Before every I go outside. Time. Every day. You every day it? I pray. Uh, I'm used, used to it. You're just used to it? When well, yeah. you grow up in something, you, can, yeah. you adapt to that environment. So you yeah. adapt to that. Uh, you're still scared a little bit. Because mm-hmm. you, you never know when you're about to get You, you know it's bad when you kids walking down the street by themselves and they yeah. hit gunshots and they don't even run. Mm-hmm. Phase, yeah, just, that's true. Yeah, there was some, like, uh, one of the, the build staff was telling me that he was working with some kids and there was, they just heard gunshots and the kids were, like, young, like, little, little ones and they were just saying, like, oh, trying to guess what kind of gun it was that the shot came mm-hmm. from. It's like, oh, my God. That is. No, no, like, it's, like, uh, it's getting so bad, people, kids ain't even hit, hit double digits yet. I already know how to shoot a gun. So. Man, yeah. insane. Man. But then so and then some of the good stuff though. Like I mean what what some what's, of the good yeah black people starting to get along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that we come together as a community too, mm-hmm. you know, like build this establishment, like stuff yeah. like this. Totally. Yeah. Like doing yeah, good true. for the community, for the kids, you know, keeping yeah. us out the streets and stuff. Yeah. Get a more organization shit. Uh-huh. Like, once some Chicago helping us get paid. Yeah. 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 But also doing some cool stuff, yeah, right? Keeping, yeah, keeping us occupied, you yeah. know, keeping us busy and stuff like this. Like, this and music stuff is yeah. good, man. So a lot of the work that Bill does, right, is gang intervention, gang prevention. As young men coming up, like, what what about gangs do you see just being so, like, seductive? Like, what makes people want to join them so much? It's the fast money, man. Everybody yeah. want to copy each other. Everybody yeah. want that fast they, money. Everybody hate them each other, too. Mm-hmm. So they see, like, like gangs, they love, they love to see that because you get fame off them. Sometimes you get fame off mm-hmm. You yeah. get money. You hustle. Yeah. They see how walks blow. They see the females come. Right. They see the money coming. They see they can get anything they want. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like this back then. Though. They just be fighting stuff, but now everybody just trying to kill each other. See, I rarely see fights no more. Right. Really? It's just shooting? You'd just... you be lucky you see a fight. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, for real. You ain't, yeah, you ain't lying. So it's, it's somebody fight. Yeah. Next thing you know, it's RIP. If they lose, like, this, this fights nowadays. Mm-hmm. Say if I go fight you and you beat me up. Yeah. Next time I see you, I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. That's how it is. Man. What happened in the good old days of just beating each other it's up, It's not right? that no more. It's right. not that no more. This is a new generation, once all, man. Once all the big, higher-ranking gang leaders got arrested, then everybody wanted to try to take power. Yeah. They ain't got nobody to look, to everybody look up to. Everybody be big head. Yeah, it was yeah. disorganized and splintered and stuff. Everyone's That's trying to take that power. Left. I don't mm-hmm. think I look cool, though. That's like a, mm-hmm. a bad name on yourself. Uh, people back, don't even be cat now. Like, back then, when it was gangs, they, they it was like a brotherhood. They was doing stuff for their yeah. community at the same time. Now, yeah. it's just yeah. you destroying your community. You selling after they oh, destroy, yeah. my fault. After they destroy, then they asking why they don't get this, why they don't huh. get that type mm-hmm. of religion, how they don't get that like, privilege. Like, talking yeah. to some of these these guys out of the intervention staff that like you know were like OG vice lords and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, like they're talking about like they they made sure that like the the young dudes would go to school. Like you'd get beat yeah, up if yeah, you didn't true. go to school. That was back yeah. in the day. You clean up the communities. Like you'd like it, it was like a, almost like yeah, like you helping out to like old people and stuff like that. The big, like, you walk past, pick up something for them. Uh-huh. Yeah, close they gate all that. But Mow lawns, like that sort of thing. It's the point like, about it. Old people they don't even sit on their porch no more how they used to be. Uh, yeah, the big like dogs mom, now they want them to skip school to come sell. So let's move into the next portion of this episode, which is going to be our conversation with U.S. Senator Dick Durbin. Super nice guy. Was very surprised by how seemingly down to earth this extraordinarily powerful politician was. Um, so we'll be back uh, right after this. Stay with us. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Build Radio. We have a very special guest with us today, U.S. Senator. Dick Durbin, thank you so much for coming by. Um, Dick Durbin is the assistant Democratic leader of the Democratic Party in the Senate. He's a chief proponent of the DREAM Act, key player in tobacco regulation, author of the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act, decreasing racial bias in drug sentencing. He's a friend of the environment. The League of Conservation Voters and Sierra Club gave him an A rating and an F from the NRA. So all good grades. (laughs) All right. Um, So first question uh, Senator, you've had a lot of success in your in the legislature. If you had to choose one accomplishment, however, within your tenure you were the most proud of, what would it be and why? Well, there's one thing that I achieved and one thing I'm still waiting to achieve. The one I achieved was to, it seems so simple, to ban smoking on airplanes. That was over 25 years ago. And it seemed pretty obvious. I mean, we're all sitting in the same airline cabin and they called one section smoking, the other non-smoking, and we knew better. Everybody was breathing in secondhand smoke, like it or not. And so I banned it. Now the reason it, it became more significant than it might appear is it really started a movement all across the country. People started saying, if it's not safe to smoke in an airplane, why is it safe to smoke on a train, in a bus, in an office, in a hospital, in a restaurant, in a bar? And pretty soon we found it all across America, some 25 years later, we look at smoking a lot differently. Mm-hmm. When I first started off as a congressman, before then, uh, it was common to have an ashtray on right. on the desk because visitors smoked. Mm-hmm. They didn't even ask you. They just yeah. lit up if they wanted to. 
It's unthinkable now. Right. Nobody does it. Right. So that was a pretty big change in America. Seriously, major. Uh, big one. The other one has yet to be finished, and you already referred to it, and that's the DREAM Act. Mm-hmm. We have literally a million, maybe two million young people whose lives hang in the balance here. Will they get a chance to become part of the only country they've ever known, the part of the country that they've grown up in? We introduced the DREAM Act 17 years ago to give them that chance. It has not become the law of the land. We've tried different ways through DACA. President Obama helped us with an executive order. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, President Trump has eliminated that executive order's protection. So the battle continues. That's still a major part of my responsibility to get mm-hmm. done in Congress. Well, thank you for your persistence and diligence in that matter. Um, so you've served in the U.S. Congress since 1983. That's, right. That's quite a long time. That's what Reagan and Bush Sr. and Clinton, Bush Jr., Obama, and this guy we've got now. Um, in what ways is the Congress that you sit in today most markedly different from the ones you sat in early on in your career? There's less cooperation between Democrats and Republicans. It reflects the fact that the Supreme Court and Citizens United, a famous case, mm-hmm. decided that uh, the wealthy, uh, wealthiest people in America and corporations could contribute as much as they wished. So they decided that they would come down uh, big footing into our political process to try to get their agenda passed, giving millions of dollars to their friends and defeating their enemies. Mm -hmm. It struck the fear of the Lord into a lot of my Republican colleagues. They just won't break ranks and join with Democrats on major legislation. There's too much money in politics now. I've always said that uh, when I get started in this business, uh, there were two categories. There were the multimillionaires and the mere mortals, Mm -hmm. and I was in the mere mortal category. Unfortunately, with all the money out there now, the millions that are being spent, a lot of people who should be in politics are discouraged. I Mm -hmm. hope they won't be discouraged. I hope they'll get involved. Right. Yeah, I mean, that was part of my next question. I actually was not going to ask you, but I was going to ask you, I will ask you now. Can you talk a little bit about Senate Bill 752, the fair elections now? Well, the idea is to to change it dramatically. I mean, really make a difference. Mm -hmm. Shorter campaigns, public financing, take the big money out of campaigns. The wealthiest people in America are entitled to the same thing that every voter is, Mm -hmm. one vote. Right. And some reasonable contribution to a candidate of your choice. Uh, That, to me, would change America for the better. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would take the big money out, and I think we would get more independent-minded men and women elected to Congress. Absolutely, but it did not make it through committee, right? No, unfortunately, I can't get a single Republican co-sponsor. That is unbelievable. (laughs) No surprise. So, you know, I think when I was asking people, we we were hoping we would get this interview going, and so a couple people... Um, I asked about, like, what, what should I ask Senator Durbin? I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so a lot of the sentiment that was echoed is just kind of the, the disillusionment that I would say the average American feels with the say that they have in their own democracy, you know, the supposed for the people, by the people sort of like ideology that doesn't seem to necessarily exist anymore. So for these people that have kind of lost their faith and can, are considering just taking a step back and just giving up sort of, what would your advice be for those sorts of people? Take a look at what happened last Saturday in America. Mm -hmm. All across the United States, in Chicago, in Boston, in New York, in Washington, in Los Angeles, young people, students, high school and college students, stepped up to lead America in a political movement. That is amazing. We've never had anything quite like that. Young people have been part of most civil rights and human rights movements, Mm -hmm. but this was one that they inspired and they organized, and it's Mm -hmm. over the issue of gun safety. They understand it. Certainly those in Parkland, Florida, saw 17 of their classmates and teachers and others killed uh, with a a semi-automatic AR-15 weapon. Mm -hmm. They think that's madness, and I do too. They're also stepping up and saying it's madness to have all the killing on the streets of Chicago by guns, not just in schools. Mm -hmm. And they're right about that as well. These students have started a national movement. It wasn't just one day. It's going Mm -hmm. to continue. So if you think you can't make a difference, think about those kids at that high school in Parkland, Florida, who said, we're going to organize America, and Mm -hmm. they're doing it. We can do that. Everyone can do it. Social media makes it easier than ever to Mm -hmm. do it. So I hope people won't be discouraged. They can make a difference in the future of this country. It's, yeah, it's extraordinarily inspiring seeing what these kids have, have gotten together and the, the, the fervor that they've, you know, inspired in, in millions of people. Um, for young people who are interested in getting involved with a career in politics, what advice might you have for them? First step, uh, be informed, uh, understand the issues, do some reading, do some uh, background work on that. Uh, second, um, 
formulate some ideas in your own mind of things that are important to you, what your values are. If climate change is your big issue, uh, understand it and then come to understand how members of Congress vote on that issue. If gun safety is your issue, there's another opportunity. There's so many different areas. Step number two, after you're informed and developed your thinking a little bit on it, get involved in a campaign. Find a candidate who's close to you in their thinking and volunteer to help. They'll find something for you to do. You'll start off with some pretty menial tasks, we all do, but watch what happens. Stick Mm -hmm. around that campaign and after the first week, they're gonna want you to do more, little different things. You'll understand how a political campaign works and you'll get closer to a candidate understanding this process. The third part, when you're old enough, register, vote. The next part, at that moment in your life when you think you're ready, run for office. It may not be a full-time career for you. It may be some part-time involvement in a school board or some other local office, but that's the way to do it, to make a difference in this democracy. Wonderful. Can I just ask you one last Chicago-centric sort of question? Um, So after Parkland, as as we've discussed, you know, gun control has become a very hot issue in the country. Um, In Chicago, however, a lot of the proposed measures, background checks, age limits, particular model, and part bans, might not be as terribly effective as most guns here used in gang activity are obtained illegally. Um, what actions do you think Illinois can take to stop the youth violence problems in Chicago? Well, I was disappointed that Governor Rauner vetoed the bill, which would have given our state the power to license gun dealers. I think we should have done that to take an extra step if Congress won't take that step in Washington to make sure that we have universal background checks. You may remember on February 13th when Captain Paul Bauer of the Chicago Police Department responded to a fugitive escaping downtown, ran after him, got cornered in a stairwell, and was killed with six bullets. This man left behind a a wife and a a teenage daughter and a heartbroken city of Chicago. There's nothing that's been passed in Congress since that would even address this issue. We've got to keep guns out of the hands of people who will misuse them. Convicted felons, people who are mentally unstable. Those are the things to move forward on. And I hope that if we can't do it in Washington, that at least in Springfield and in the city councils around our state, we'll see genuine efforts to make our state a safer place. Senator, we thank you so much for your time. It was very, very meaningful and special of you to drop by, come on our little podcast, and uh, see this wonderful space that we've got going on. Um, It's a truly incredible place here that touches many, many lives. This is U.S. Senator Dick Durbin, and you're listening to Build Radio. Boom. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Thank you. All righty, we're back here in the studio. Uh, Big, big thanks to Senator Durbin for coming by Build and spending some time with us here on the West Side. Very important guy, that guy, but super warm, nice, down to earth, which was just, I guess, refreshing to see from such a powerful individual. Extraordinarily polished. That guy doesn't say, um, almost at all, which is just super impressive to hear. I want to note that many of Bill's staff also participated in the March for Our Lives that Durbin and I talked about. Folks here walk the walk. Like, the work here doesn't end come five o'clock. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's a way of being. How do BUILD programs impact neighborhood violence? BUILD changes lives by providing safe and constructive alternatives to youth who are involved with gangs, the justice system, or other risky behaviors. Through both individualized and community-based programming, BUILD opens doors for youth who may have given up or who may have been given up on, helping them take charge of their lives, futures, and their communities. BUILD summer peace leagues bring together ex-gang members and police and other neighborhood kids to create positive alternatives to street life and to build trust. Intensive mentoring provides troubled youth with the support and opportunities to develop goals and hold themselves accountable. Opportunities like the Youth Leadership Council, Restorative Justice Initiative, and Inward Healing Camping Trips are just some of the ways that BUILD ensures that court and gang-involved youth invest in their futures. Last year, there was a 91% reduction in suspensions and expulsions amongst the youth involved in BUILD's intervention program. 90% of intervention youth reduced negative and high-risk behaviors, and 78% of court-involved youth BUILD worked with avoided recidivism. BUILD works, but it's fighting a behemoth of a problem, a problem that is the result of decades of discriminatory and racially informed housing, criminal justice, and economic policymaking. It's imperative that we educate ourselves on issues, 
understand why things are the way they are and what we can do to change them. People can make a difference when they come together. That's what democracy is for. That's what democracy is about. Your vote matters. The Grand Canyon was made by just a bunch of single drops of water. Every avalanche is just a bunch of single snowflakes. We don't endorse anybody here. We don't take sides. But I think we could maybe use an avalanche about now. Let's talk about voting. Voter eligibility rules for Illinois. So as far as eligibility, right? Let's go to for all the listeners. You got to be a U.S. citizen. One, right. be a resident of Illinois for at least 30 days. Right. Two, be at least 18 years old. Mm-hmm. But if you're 17, you can vote in the general primary if you'll be 18 by then. Um, and you can't be registered to vote in another state. Uh, if you are incarcerated, you can't vote at that time. But after you complete your sentence, your voting rights will be restored. Um, and then you can also, once you're registered, you can register to vote by mail. Um, you can vote in person. Uh, very extraordinarily important part of making sure that the voice of the people is heard and that you participate. Democracy is not just a once every four year sort of thing. Are you guys, like folks you know, do most people you know vote? Yep. Yeah, my, mm-hmm. my, my brother most of my vote. whole community vote. Very cool. important. Um, so I just want to ask you guys, for those of you that are 18 or just turn 18 or turning 18, are you guys going to vote when you have the opportunity? This Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? How come? Maybe not. Because the stuff that's going on right now, mm-hmm. we need to change. Yeah. We need a new president, too. To be honest, Maybe I, not. I really don't think our vote even count or it even matters because at the end of the day, electoral votes count, and mm-hmm. that's what everybody look at. So yeah. even if we decide that we won't say uh, Democrat to be our president, it's really not going to matter because really mm-hmm. the people who control the outcome is the upper yeah. Republicans. So yeah, for know. what were you saying, TJ? Also is I feel like after all at all the governments and stuff we have, like it's the same thing. So what's changing if mm-hmm. I if my one vote won't go? Yeah. That's what I'd be thinking. And I feel too, yeah, I feel what you guys are saying and I see and I think a lot of people feel that way too, especially in regards to like just thinking about the the value, the validity of of your what were you gonna say? Oh, I was about to say, at least we try to make a change. Yeah. Somebody else might think the same thing. Another group might mm-hmm. think the same thing. Right. And you never know. It like, won't things, hurt. It won't yeah. hurt to say something. Things can turn. You know, there was there was a primary recently in New York where this 28 year old progressive uh, Latina Democrat woman she just like upset with this groundswell of support and and unseated the incumbent, the guy who is you know gonna be one of the potential new speakers of the house. Um, and everyone was freaking out. This was crazy, but this was you know democracy in action of what can happen when people come together right. and make their voices heard. But I do understand what you guys are saying in regards to not feeling as though maybe your voices may be heard. I feel that too sometimes when you look at these enormous corporations that are allowed to spend thousands and thousands, maybe millions probably of dollars on campaign on came uh, excuse me, campaign contributions, which is kind of like bribery, right? If like, you know, you're some huge company that gives some guy like here, here's fifty thousand dollars. You're gonna if you're a politician, you're gonna do what they ask you. And so then it's like you're not gonna represent us little guys, right? And that's yeah. that Citizens United twenty ten bill that was signed into law, just atrocious. Yep. Um probably one of the biggest problems in facing democracy today can be all of the I would say a lot of the problems can be attributed back to that that ruling which takes the say out of a lot of the the, the little guys um, uh-huh. yes, sir. and so that's I don't know it I, I get what you're saying but yeah, like, we don't <laughs> we gotta we gotta you know we gotta and do it. also if you look at it like they all doing the same thing it's just they talking different mm-hmm. it's just they want different things but it all go back to like Say like the the earth, like we all in one core, we but we yeah. all different. It's like them, they all mm-hmm. different, but they all come back to one core. Mm-hmm. So I don't see yeah. them changing. And I think a lot of people too just like harbor this disdain for the other party. If you you know if you're a Republican, you hate the Democrats, the liberals. If you're a Democrat, you hate the conservatives, the Republicans. Mm-hmm. But it's like a society kind of needs both to go like an ebb and flow, uh-huh. a yin and yang yeah. sort of thing like that. You need you need some people want to conserve the old values and some people want to liberate you from from those old values. And it's like yeah. this necessary circle. Yeah. It's not just one or the other. Everything repetitive. Yeah, and Everything so it gets to be itself. a problem when you just have this this hatred inside you, blind hatred for the the other party as as a whole. Um, and so that's I think also what we're seeing too, why this divisiveness is is just becomes super super toxic. Um, and that spills into stuff like the news. Uh, do you guys? Consume news, read the news, papers, oh, yeah. articles. Yeah. I mean, I would say. Yeah, I watch the news early mm-hmm. in the morning when I'm about to go to work. Yep. With my mama. 
Yeah. She leave the TV on loud in the living room. Mm -hmm. So we forced to listen to everything that happened. <laughs> yeah. Or watch. Like, you can mm -hmm. listen or watch. Do you feel like you, you can get a picture of, of what's going on? Like a, you know, sort of nuance, a little bit of this, a little bit of that side, a little bit of this, excuse me, this side, or it's just kind of like something is shoved down your throat and told you to think a certain way? It's basically, yeah, it makes, it's like, I, yeah, it's basically trying to make you feel yeah. like certain way. I think mm -hmm. it's like, Oh god, it's all. yeah. It's tough because you got to do your own research too, and you got to think about like, okay, they're saying yeah. this, they've got these facts, but who is this coming from? Who, what's it, what paper is this? Right. This is oh, okay, this is CNN, this is MSNBC, you know, they this is the New York Times, and who owns them, and what are know, their interests? They yeah. let you know about and the stuff their, that they want to hear, yeah, and right. the stuff that they want you to see. Like it's murders just going on in East St. Louis, which is a small town, mm -hmm. or uh, towns like Maywood and stuff like that. You don't never hear. The little murders that's going on. And if you do hear like about them, it's like a short period of time. Yeah. Right. Like, and yeah, yeah everyone's got their agendas and their their biases, of yeah. course, like that. And like, their businesses at the end of the day. You got to make a profit. Right. You know who, um, leading, uh, who the murder? Well, the city that's leading the murders right now. Well, Isn't it like Baltimore? It's I mean, Baltimore, East St. Louis. Miami. Which, yeah. Like, it's not even Chicago no more. Like, I'm not going to lie. Our violence cut down a little bit. Not, not yeah. to a point where it's controllable but mm -hmm. i think it was because the money for for what taxes mm -hmm. oh for murders and stuff going down yeah, yeah. yeah. Want, want nobody kill it because they got some money in their pocket yeah. yeah for now though like it's scary i mean i'm not going to say that i understand tax policy but it seems to me it's just kind of kicking the can down the road well, um, i think i think chicago got the message now we all need to come as as one yeah mm -hmm. yeah well, what it was, when, um, the dude had killed everybody inside that school. Sixteen people, right? In on at in Florida. Yeah, that's yeah. Florida. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those kids are amazing. He killed sixteen people. Yeah, I mean those kids like they they came together and started a national movement. Like they're they're galvanizing young people to get involved in in voting and get registered too. They're doing like a tour across the United States to get young people registered to vote, which I think is amazing. The March for Our Lives, they organized themselves. They're your guys' age. But that's what it took, though. It's, I know it's, exactly. Yeah. Like, what about the um? What was that murder that happened in Connecticut? Maryland was it? The no, newspaper when all one? the kids got killed. Um, Florida? Oh, oh, oh! Uh, New Haven? New Haven was it? The the school? The yeah, and yeah. The it little was like kids? before Christmas. Yeah, the yeah. Like uh, Sandy Hook. Oh, Sandy yeah, Hook. Sandy, yep. Yeah. And then ain't nobody marched for that. It wouldn't have been right. marched for that. It, like, it take all these killings in schools just for yeah. somebody to finally get the yeah, message. It's, like, and the thing with that is, like, you know, it's like the, those, you'd think that something like that would, like, you know, just, like, I don't there's not even a word for how despicable such an action like right. that is. But you'd think that people would come together over that, but it didn't happen. But it took, because those kids couldn't speak out. The other kids yeah. in the school were five years old or whatever. But these, yeah. these were high school kids who had the awareness the you know the intellectual capacity and like the the media tools they were they were social media mavens and able to make their message heard. Like yeah. we we focus on this for a while. We mm -hmm. only gonna focus on certain things for like at least two weeks, and then we go back right back to repeating everything that happened again. And then yeah. take something else, and we just focus on two weeks, do it mm -hmm. again. Like that's the tragedy. Up, yeah, like and you're you're absolutely right. And you gotta look at it like the school shootings to me like it's not the students' fault, but like. I don't feel bad. I don't know if that's harsh to say, but like, I don't feel bad. I feel bad for the students. I don't feel bad for the school. Like, cause they want to be, even though they in the suburbs and they far like mm -hmm. around not violence, it should to be security. Mm -hmm. It should, like, how did somebody get in your school with a gun? Yeah. It should be metal detectors. Yeah. Security on every foot. I do think about that though. And then I think about, you know, like, young kids coming up in the south and west sides here in chicago and there's like you know a national international outcry when it's mm -hmm. in like a white school in the suburbs but when there's shootings and killings here every day it's just kind of like a you know it's like another yeah. day in the life sort of thing which is you know yeah because look at it like in chicago schools mostly blacks we got we got um metal detectors and stuff and we don't Do all your guys schools have metal detectors yep. yeah and it's yes. rare it's no shootings at all like mm-hmm that should have showed them something that they need metal detectors in. Yeah. Some just a little security. It don't. It don't have to be like. We know you want your kids to be free, but right. like, it yeah. got to be a little security on them. Yeah. yeah. This world too dangerous. That's smart. Cause they're like, he right. Cause. Go ahead. 
Maybe they should start bringing like Tays up in our song at least. I mean, what do you think about like all that? The, I mean, I personally think it's crazy, but like the idea to why don't we arm the teachers? No. Hell no. no. Right? No. Just keep Maybe it at the metal wait, detectors. Wait. So, I, I was hearing something about that. Uh, the teacher had told me like when that shooting had happened, he had, uh, he had told me that the teachers, uh, they was going to have lockers and with guns inside of and stuff. I was about to say like. What if the teacher crazy in the head? Yeah. Right. It just they, seems, yeah. Uh, they just upset one day, shoot a student. Because right. teachers get mad problem. every yeah. day. You teachers got teachers are, that, go ahead. Teachers are humans too. They're going to get mad, frustrated. Yeah. They're going to do things that want to do. Because if you put a gun in the kid's hand, they get mad, mm -hmm. they're going to shoot it. So what you think is. And like to me, what that also is, that's just more seemingly closely accessible guns to other kids too. You find out where the teacher hides right. it or whatever like, like that. Why are you going to have more guns near the hands of potential, you know, perpetrators? Right. Right. Better, get some, better get some brass knuckles. Yeah. Maybe teachers. the students want to feel safe. Yeah. Not come to school. That I might just brush education out the way. Mm -hmm. right. Right. Get them like a, a, a taser or a mace. And this teacher's that just got out the army or been in the army and you're going to get them a gun. Like, they still... They still probably in that war. Yeah, you know, reprocessing and everything. Yeah, kids like, what not do you, gonna feel comfortable. Yeah, right? I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable like, like a teacher, math there, teacher you know with a holster. Teacher got right. Yeah. What's <laughs> they give <laughs> you a math problem away? Now I can what? see some small like pepper spray, something like that, but like yeah. a gun. Yeah, maybe, maybe tasers, like you yeah. were saying, but like. Um, can I ask what in general you guys think, you know, regarding the Second Amendment about you know the the right to bear Best arms, to bear own on. guns, and stuff. Uh. You know, as far as like, mixed cool with know, made guns, <laughs> mixed cool emotions. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's kind of mixed emotions. And it's interesting because it's like we talk. You know, I talked in the interview a little bit about how like stuff like proposed, you know, part bans. Like they want to part uh, ban parts that you can make these assault weapons with. They want to, uh -huh. you know, talk about you. You have to be a certain age to get it. You know, you have to wait a certain amount of days before you can pick it up from the store. But like in Chicago, for example, a lot of a lot of those rules wouldn't matter because a lot of the the, the guns that are used in in uh, gang activity. Are obtained illegally, right? Uh -huh, so it's like right. it wouldn't even really make a difference. So the people that's, we don't just get them in our hands. We get it from probably white people that got it register. Mm -hmm. They sell them. Yeah. They, they pass them down so we can kill kill each other. That's like, so right. it's the freight yard. It's the freight because yeah. a lot of guns just got taken. Well, I can't even speak on that. I'm not even gonna speak on that. So uh, <laughs> I can't speak. On that. Uh, so um, when you mean like. Things that can't go on guns, you mean like silencers and red beans? I think part like of that. it was just like things to make them shoot faster and like oh, more bullets okay. per minute. Like, yeah, just like oh, various yeah. parts. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't even know, but yeah, just like things to make them more. Like one burst. Right, uh, like more lethal, stock, I guess. Them stocks, them recoils, like. Yeah. Them things. Like, yeah. Um, but just as we were saying, you know, as regards to news outlets, um, I think it is a necessary, you know, component to the democracy, and it's unfortunate that the current leadership, you know, just presents this, this, this hatred towards the free press, mm -hmm. um, and it's like, man, that's that's, uh, it's what it's necessary to keep things rolling, keep people informed, um, and it that's you know, it starts to sound like fascism a little bit, yes. and it's scary. Um, so speaking truth to power is a necessity. It's it's a integral component to making sure that this this whole grand American experiment um, keeps experimenting for a couple more generations yeah. at least. Um, so just speaking about that, we're going to go into an interview with Dr. Eve Ewing, who also I would say I, I, I think about when I think about speaking truth to power. She just wrote a book on on racism in Chicago public schools. Um, and so make sure to go check that out. It's available at a lot of places. She'll give you a little plug at the end. Um, but just, you know, she's an artist. She's a poet. You know, we talk about, too, how, how important those mediums are to expressing, you know, views, political views. You know, a lot of hip-hop, too. It was yeah. like, you know, the NWA is a public enemy. You know, Kendrick lately. Like, that is, a lot of it is political, politically charged hip-hop. That's speaking truth to power. Um, and that's super important in today's day and age, almost more than ever. Um, so we're going to go into that interview, and we'll be back in just a little bit. And you're listening to Build Radio. We have a very special guest today, Eve Ewing, or Dr. Eve Ewing. Huh? That's great. Either one Eve is fine. L. Yeah. Ewing. Um, she's a writer, poet, visual artist, educator, cultural organizer, 
Received her doctorate from Harvard, published in the New York Times, Atlantic, Washington Post, to name a few. Featured on The Daily Show, right? Yeah. Um, you were ready. <laughs> I, yeah, I did, a, I did a little bit of prep. Very I, nice, I heard you were coming by. Nice. And, uh, Senator Durbin came by, too. So like, oh, okay, let's just do some research real quick. Okay. Awesome. Well done. So um, that's a lot of success. Thank that's you. That's a fair amount of success. Thank you. Um, I try. You must have eaten a lot of vegetables growing up. Right? I did. I did. <laughs> and I continue to eat a lot of vegetables. Wonderful. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Like what maybe some key factors were that led to your trajectory of success? Sure. Yeah, well, uh, I grew up in Logan Square, um, in the Logan Square community in Chicago. And um, I think that I always grew up around a lot of art and artists. Um, my father lived in Pilsen when I was a kid, and both Logan Square and Pilsen um, and uh, Chicago overall, you know, just has a really rich art and cultural heritage. Um, and I grew up, um, kind of came of age in the program Young Chicago Authors, um, which exposed me to, and even before that, I was involved in Gallery 37, which is now After School Matters. Um, and so between those two programs, um, starting around the time I was 14, I got to be around other young people that took themselves really seriously as artists. You know, to be 14 and to meet a 16-year-old who's like, I'm a playwright. That's what I do. I write plays, right? Um, or to meet a 15-year-old who's like, I take my poetry very seriously. Those things kind of set me up to be among peers um, that encouraged me to understand art as like a viable lifestyle. And then similarly, I was around teaching artists that served as mentors um, that I got to see like art is something that belongs to people in my community and is reflective of people in my community, people who look like me. And that was very powerful. Cool. Um, so just speaking of poetry, um, writing poetry, I think personally and um, I know some of the kids that we work with, too, say that it can be a very daunting experience, especially yeah. when you're starting out. Um, a lot of vulnerability and sort of stuff, you know, comes with that um, seeming foolish, fear of failure sort of stuff. What kind of, like, nuggets of wisdom might you have for new writers and new poets? Well, first of all, feeling like a failure or feeling like you're bad at it is, like, a, a really natural part of being an artist. Today, one of my good friends texted me, and she said, oh, my poems are trash. I said, congratulations, you're a real writer now, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think, <laughs> I think that, like, those, those feelings of failure and feelings of doubt, um, I have never met a writer that does not experience that, even when you've been doing it 20, 30 years. I have friends that have New York Times bestsellers that, you know, they wake up and they're like, I'm the worst writer in the world. Like, that, that feeling never goes away. And so I think actually something that is helpful is, one, to get comfortable with the idea of failure and the idea of not being perfect and to use that as a motivation to say, how can I keep getting better? How can I keep improving? Um, but I think that when you're just getting started, um, I'm a big fan of what I call like non-judgmental writing. So usually when I'm starting with a group of people teaching them how to write poetry, I never say like we're going to write a poem or I never even refer to the word poetry until we get further into the process. I might just say, you know, um, make a list of times and places when you have felt really safe like people who make you feel safe and make you feel good about yourself, we're going to set a timer for six minutes and you're going to write down as many things as you can think of. Okay, now go back to that list and I want you to be really specific. So I want you to not just say, I feel safe when I'm with my friends, but I want you to say, I feel safe when I'm at my friend's grandma's house in the basement where we play PlayStation every Friday and she makes us dinner and I feel really good about myself and I feel really warm and like I can be myself when I'm there, right? Those are the things that are the beginnings of seeds of, of poetry. And I think the reason that it feels really daunting is because people have this idea that poetry has to be this super formal, perfect, polished thing. But in order to get there, the first step is just recognizing the beauty and the strangeness in everyday life. And those are the seeds of things that become good poems. It's kind of like if you were trying to bake a cake for the first time and you tasted the batter when it was just like, you know, flour and sugar and what, whatever, and you were like, oh, this is nasty, right? Like cake batter doesn't taste good. Mm -hmm. But you have to put it in the <laughs> oven and you have to give it a little time. And maybe the first couple times the recipe is not going to work and you have to try it again, right? That's kind of what writing is like. You have to give it time. Don't just taste the batter and say it tastes bad. Because it's going to taste bad. <laughs> so is that sort of uh, techniques, exercise that you were discussing, you know, do this and then go in detail and even more detail, kind of how you started? I noticed a lot of your poetry is very, very detailed and particular, you know, components and items that go in further and further and further with definitions and descriptions that I never, you know, would have expected to take you down a certain place. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, that's definitely how I write. Um, 
almost every poem I've, I think, I mean, pretty much every poem I write, um, and even, you know, even writing in other genres, but definitely every poem that I write begins with a moment of noticing something mm-hmm. or of asking a question, of asking a question or um, observing something small about the world. So I have a poem uh, that just got published uh, recently, and it's called I Saw Emmett Till This Week at the Grocery Store. And the poem is really just answering the question, like, what would happen if Emmett Till was never killed, right? Mm -hmm. And most likely, he would just go on to live a regular, boring life. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. For someone whose life was was ended so early and so tragically, to say, you know, what if he was just like a guy in his 70s that I see at the Jewel? you know, mm-hmm. and like who's maybe moving through line or picking out the produce to try to or like checking the expiration <laughs> date on the milk. Right. Like just living a regular life. And um, so that's like the question that motivates that poem. Um, but, yeah, a lot of my poems come from just like looking at people on the bus and seeing what they're yeah. doing or reading something that sounds really interesting. Uh, and I think that, you know, I have a poem about I have a poem in the book in um, Electric Arches that's about Luster's pink oil lotion, right? Hair lotion. Like, I think everything can be a poem. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I think that specificity adds a lot of authenticity to Thank you. what you're uh, writing about. And the thing is, is that when you write about specific things, there are going to be a small percentage of people that understand that particular reference. Mm-hmm. But um, all people, the the more the, the strange thing about art is that the more specific you are, the more real it feels to everybody. Yeah, you know, and so all of us have like... Um, favorite songs or movies or books that are about places that actually we've never been, mm-hmm. but when somebody describes them with great care and specificity, it feels it feels real, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if I have a poem, I have a poem called Fullerton Avenue, and it's about like all these specific places that used to be on Fullerton when I was growing up. Um, and there's always one person, you know, every few months that comes up to me and is like, I know that laundromat, you know. But most people, I just want them to fill in whatever their Fullerton Avenue is, like whatever mm. your street is that you grew up on riding the bus, whatever it is for you. So how has writing poetry shaped you as you've grown up um, and what you've become? And then also how has writing poetry kind of informed your worldview or your view of society and stuff? That's a great question. I think that, um, you know, because I because – I, was taught uh, and kind of came up in um, in young Chicago authors and around Poetry Slam and around the Chicago literary scene, it taught me that everybody's life is special and beautiful and magical and, um, and that those moments, those moments of poetry belong to everybody. And I think that that shaped my worldview um, and my ability to kind of see value and joy um, in the world around me. Um, and I think that... It also means that I have I feel a sense of obligation to tell the story of my time and my life and my personhood um, for people to come after in the same way that I'm grateful that other people did that for me. So I'm going to read a poem called Affirmation. Um, this poem, uh, a couple years ago, I did a thing where I said, um, if people donated a certain amount of money to Liberation Library, um, that I would write a poem on the topic of their choice. And Liberation Library is an organization um, that does really important work, which is that they provide books for young people, that teenagers that are incarcerated in Illinois. Um, so I try to support them as much as I can. Um, And the great thing about that program is that the young people get to request the books that they want um, because it's important for young people to be able to make choices about what they want to read and what they're interested in. Um, So I I made this offer, like, if you donate, I'll write a topic, a poem on the topic of your choice. And somebody said, uh, well, I'm going to donate, and can you just write a poem that's for the young people themselves? And so I wrote this poem, um, and it's meant to be something that's kind of easy to memorize or have on your side if you're feeling stressed or um, under, you know, under duress. So the poem's called Affirmation to Youth Living in Prison After Asada Shakur. Speak this to yourself until you know it is true. I believe that I woke up today and my lungs were working miraculously 
My voice can sing and murmur and ask miraculously. My hands may shake, but they can hold me or another. My blood still carries the gifts of the air from my heart to my brain, miraculously. Put a finger to my wrist or my temple and feel it. I am magic, life and all its good and bad and ugly things, scary things which I would like to forget, beautiful things which I would like to remember. The whole messy, lovely, true story of myself pulses within me. I believe that the sun shines, if not here, then somewhere. Somewhere it rains and things will grow green and wonderful. Somewhere inside me too it rains and things will grow green and wonderful. Sometimes my insides rain from the inside out. And then I know I am alive, I am alive, I am alive. How long did like that, for example, take you to write? Um, let's see. I think the first time I draft a poem, I usually do it pretty quickly between like ten and thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the work is really in revision, and so um, I might go back to a poem and revise it two or three or four or five times. Um, and each of those revisions, you know, there's a lot of questions like, how does the poem sound? How does it look on the page? Um, what are the line breaks? Am I getting at the idea I'm trying to get at? And then um, I really rely heavily on peers and colleagues to also read my work and give me feedback, which I think is a really important part of being a writer. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a long time. Awesome. So, among other important things, in 2017, you were voted the best Chicagoan to follow on Twitter. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to the people. So. <laughs> I appreciate y'all's votes. Democracy is not yet completely dead in Chicago, apparently, but... Um, so you've got almost 140,000 followers. That's a very pretty amount. Um, <laughs> Thank but, you. Um, so Twitter is a powerful platform, as we see, fortunately and unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so with, with reaching that number and your sort of place of you know relative prominence, too, um, how, what was that ascent like? Was it kind of steady as, as you were getting more involved in the scene and your you know, doctorate work and stuff like that? Or did something happen, like a big event? It was like, oh, that's that girl. I'm like, No, yeah, that's what's so weird is that um, I have other friends that have very large followings um and for most of them it's traceable to something like you know they had a viral ted talk or you know they were involved in like a major world event or something like that and um for me these people have just been like slowly accumulating i've been on twitter since 2009 um and they've just kind of like just started showing up (laughs) and uh and they they quality content yeah yeah i guess so and um i've always been really mystified and also kind of grateful for that um because you know like now i have a book out but that's only been i mean the book came out in september so it's Mm. been out for less than a year um i don't have a podcast i don't have a show i don't have a youtube channel I don't like write for any major media. I mean, you know, I freelance, but I've, I'm not like a staff writer. And so I've always been kind of like, who are you people? <laughs> you know, like, who are you? and Why are you here? And um, for the most part, um, obviously, I can't speak for all 100 and whatever thousand of them. But um, for the most part, I find that the people I interact with are really kind and really supportive. Um, it may be because I uh, like hastily mute and block all the jerk people. (laughs) But, um, for the most part, I, you know, I deal with a fair share of, you know, like abuse and harassment and stuff like that online. But, um, I really try to not let the small proportion of people that are disrespectful or cruel outweigh the fact that, um, mostly it's a lot of really kind people that, that are incredibly supportive of me. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that and continually mystified at their, presence i'm sure that can be a brutal rabbit hole for people that like start like well maybe what do they have to say like these negative and then just yeah terrible like i just um i you know with everything i do my motto uh, or like the way i think about it is that um i have a short list of people that i feel truly accountable to Mm -hmm. um and and i only listen to to those people and i only care about what they have to say whether it's praise or criticism um and I think that it's really easy to get caught up in praise from strangers. Yeah. But like, you know, with all due respect, when strangers come up to me and they're like, I love you. And my, I'm like, you know, I say, oh, thank you. In my mm-hmm. head, I'm like, you don't love me at all. You don't know me actually at all. Yeah. 
And I think it's really easy to get addicted to that kind of praise. Um, and then when those same people like flip on you, um, they're just as easy to say, I hate you as they are to say, I love you. And, and they don't mean either thing because they don't actually know you as a person. Right. So I just, I try to keep, um, very grounded about like who I actually want to be accountable to. And that includes both, you know, individuals like my family, my close friends that have supported me for a long time that have my back. And then also like communities like, you know, when I write about Chicago, I want people who live in Chicago to co-sign it. And I want the people, you know, when I write about young people, I want to be serving young people or whoever the community is. So I try to set out with everything I do to think about like, okay, who am I really accountable for, you know? and uh, try to keep the audience in mind. It also doesn't help that people in Chicago are petty and hold grudges, and I, I lived here my whole life, and I want to keep living here. And right. so, like, uh, if I do the wrong thing, they're going to, you know, people people in Chicago will be mad at you for some stuff you did 10 years ago, <laughs> you know? So people will always be like, wow, you're so respectful of the community. And I'm like, you don't understand. The community will come for me. Like, I live here. Uh-huh. People know my parents and stuff. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to, like, mess up my life. Right. You know? <laughs> so, so that helps. You, do you have to go? Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Okay. Alrighty. Bradley says yes. I'll save the, the ghost in the schoolyard for next time. Oh, oh, I gotta plug the next. I gotta plug <laughs> yeah, the plug next it, book. Okay. It. Well, what do you have a question? Well, I mean, it's like what you wrote your dissertation on. So yeah. I'm sure it's too long. Well, I'll just say, I'll say, uh, you know, I have a book coming out in the fall, uh, in October. I have mm-hmm. a book coming out this October. It's about racism and school closings in Chicago, and I hope it'll be a useful conversation tool. Um, both for people that are interested in public education and public schools, but also just a way of having a different conversation about the history of segregation in our city and how it plays a role um, in our everyday lives in the present in a way that I think we have to really face and and, uh, take responsibility for and and address before we can ever have a better city. Wonderful. All right. Eve Ewing, thank you so much for stopping by Build Radio. Follow her at Twitter at E-V-E-E-W-I-N-G, Eve Ewing. Um, And Electric Arches, where can people get that? Anywhere you get books, including the Uh Chicago Public Library. Hey, remember those. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. Once again, thank you to Eve Ewing. We're so happy we got the chance to spend some time with her and glean some insight on her process in an art form we incorporate here at Build and use as a mechanism for self-discovery and expression. So per that discussion on the power of poetry, let's listen to a couple of spoken word pieces written by Build Youth. Me and my homie John were walking down the block, but one guy ran towards the two of us with a 357. He was a foe named Daryl. He was trying to make money, but if he had to, he'll shoot six. It was around 8 p.m. Me and John just came from getting a slice of pizza. I needed to be home at nine. John was less than 10 feet away from me. All we had was $11, and the last thing he heard was 12. 12 o'clock was John's funeral. I got there at 11. There was already people there. So far, the only ones I knew was his mom. She worked 10-hour shifts, $9 an hour, seven days a week as a waitress for the past eight years and raised John's six-year-old brother and five-year-old sister. After finding out their father cheated on her with two different women in the last four years, they were together. After that, John lived by three things. Love your family, respect your mom, and never leave your kids. Even though we all have different memories, everybody wants to see you one last time. That piece was called Numeros, and written by one of our intervention youth, Xavier. He said he came up with the unique numerical structure when he was laying in his bed, just staring at the clock one night. We hope to hear more from him in the future. 
Our second piece is a deep and personal one, written by a young poet and rapper named Chase. He calls it Chirac's Story. I'm not the same me as I was last year. See, all the things that I done been through would have made you share a tear. See, I'm not one of those kids that get good grades. I'm one of those kids that's scared to get an A. Hearing gunshots, not knowing if the bullet gonna hit your back, turning you into one of those summer flashbacks. Realizing nobody can hold your trust. Those bonds get so old that they turn into dust. You see, I changed a lot since last year. At first I was scared, now I don't even have fear. I went from thinking about school and football to what I even make it to the football practice. My life is hard, but people say theirs worse. But how do you know? Was you almost turned into a corpse? Did you almost have a baby on the way? Scared now you gotta pray? While still watching to make sure you don't get sprayed? Yeah, I thought so. Your man's hard and all, but I done made it through it all. I tied up my shoes to show a young thug had a ball. I stacked my bricks and made sure that they'll never fall. I had to press the climb when those haters called. I made it out on my own two feet to show that I don't need a father to show me how to eat. I ease my mind so I can prove that I never miss a beat. And when you try to come from me, you will always face defeat. You see, I'd have been in the war and I'd have seen the battle. You see, I'm black, I've been fighting since I held the baby rattle. Taught people how to fear me, making them forget that there ever was a we. You see, I don't speak French, but we, we is something I never hear see. Cause you never had my back when things went thin. All you was worried about was them Ben Franklins, or living high like the Jeffersons, or floating on them clouds like the Jetsons. So don't worry, Dex, this is my laboratory. Coming from the home of Chirac, I open up my story. Before we go, we have a special commercial of our next episode. Featuring the voice of one of Build's intervention team members, Max Serda speaks poignantly of pain, prison, and redemption. I did not understand to this day why I didn't even get wounded. Them guys put their guns in the car and I didn't get hit one time. When I heard the other cars take off, I stuck my head up and I looked at my brother and I seen he was full of blood. He took his last breath. When that happened, I went straight to the dark side. The night we buried him, it was like five of us walking around trying to find the enemy. We were hurt, full of anger, full of pain. I didn't worry about getting locked up. I didn't worry about dying. I was looking for death, bro. I was running right into it, head on. The next day, I was arrested for murder. I was incarcerated from the age of 16 to the age of 35. It was something else, man. Prison was something else. I did a total of five and a half years in solitary confinement. That's where I learned how to think. It's where I learned how to read. It's where I learned how to cry. I needed that so much. I'm proud of who I am today and what I'm trying to accomplish. Getting kids out of gang, helping parolees prepare for reintegration into society and working with mothers who lost kids to violence. People can change. It's not how the story begins. It's where it leads to and what kind of legacy we leave behind. That was an excerpt of Death is Contagious, the story of Max Serda that was chronicled a few years back in a book called How Long Will I Cry and later adapted for stage at the Steppenwolf Theater. Our next episode will feature a dramatic reading of Max's story by Chicago actor Tommy Rivera Vega and culminate in a raw and intimate interview with Max himself. We'll talk about gang life, to what prison and solitary confinement were like, and now on the other side of all that, what his work with Build means to him. 
Alrighty, so from all of us here at Build Radio, we just want to thank you so much for listening. Just by lending an ear, you're helping. You're raising awareness for some truly impactful and life-changing work here on the West Side. Show us some love on social media at Build Chicago. Also, a review or a rating on iTunes would mean so much. If you want to get involved, email volunteer at buildchicago.org. Join the Build family and see how working to change others' lives will absolutely change yours. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here with me today. We got any uh, final words for the people? Stay yeah. safe to bless. Yeah, stay blessed. Thanks for having us. Yeah, stay blessed. We love doing stay this. Stay positive. Yeah, we love y'all too. We love everybody <laughs> around us. And we'll yeah. love y'all joining Build. Yeah. Stay positive. It's a nice place here. They'll help you out. All right, good, good, good. Well, Don't you guys be, heard it. Thank you so problem. much, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. All right, peace. The hot boys. Stay tuned. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Benji. Build hope, build lives, and build futures. Woo!